Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are completing our series of sermons today on the book of Ezra. And to that end, I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 10. And the text for the sermon is this entire chapter, but for the sake of time, we'll only read the first 12 verses. Let us hear the word of God. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonahan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and elders All his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land, and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May he bless the reading and the preaching of it to our hearts today. Dear friends, repentance is essential for salvation. Unless we repent, we cannot be saved. The Puritan Thomas Watson said that repentance is one of the two wings by which a believer flies to heaven, the other wing being faith. But repentance is not just something we do when we first come to faith in Christ. It is something we must do time and time again. Every time we sin, we must repent. The German reformer Martin Luther once said that the whole of the Christian life consists of repentance. But what is repentance? 
Well, the Greek word for repent means literally to change one's mind. So when a sinner repents, he changes his mind. Specifically, he changes his mind about sin. He realizes that the way he has been living is not pleasing to God and will only lead to his destruction. And as a result, he turns his back on it. He turns his back on his sin. He breaks with sin. He doesn't about face on sin. Question 87 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance as follows. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now we have a powerful illustration of repentance in the passage of scripture that we read today, Ezra chapter 10. And it's to this passage that we turn our attention with the Lord's help. Our theme is the Jewish exiles repent of their sins. And we'll consider, first of all, the sorrow they expressed, secondly, the confession they made, and thirdly, the action they took. Ezra had just heard a report that some of the descendants of the first group of exiles that had returned to Jerusalem, including some of the Levites and the leaders of the people, had married heathen women. And that disturbed him greatly. In chapter 9, verse 3, we read this. Ezra writes, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. And so all day long, Ezra sat there without speaking a word. Then at the time of the evening sacrifice, Ezra began to pray. And many of the people prayed with him. We read in chapter 10, verse 1, that while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. This is quite striking. Here is Ezra and all of the people weeping and not just shedding a few tears, but weeping very bitterly. In fact, it appears as though the people wept even more than Ezra did. Literally, the original Hebrew says, the people wept with great weeping. Or some translations have it, they poured out abundant tears. Now, weeping is a mark of true repentance. In Psalm 130, verse 1, the psalmist writes, Out of the depths, meaning, out of the depths of my sorrow, I have cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, the Lord says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. When Peter heard the rooster crow, he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus, who said that before the rooster crowed, The third time he would deny him three times, and he went out and he wept bitterly. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, Paul writes that the sorrow of the Corinthians led to repentance. For, he says, you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. 
For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, to be sure, not all sorrow is evidence of repentance. Judas Iscariot sorrowed after he had betrayed the Lord Jesus. But his sorrow did not lead to repentance. It drove him, rather, to despair and ultimately to suicide. There is a true sorrow and a false sorrow, a godly sorrow and an ungodly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to life and a sorrow that leads to death. Now, how can we tell which is which? What is a godly sorrow that leads to life? Well, in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, the Puritan Thomas Watson lists six marks of true godly sorrow. First of all, he says it is inward, not outward. Secondly, he says, it's a sorrow for the offense rather than for the punishment. Thirdly, he says, it is intermixed with faith. Fourthly, it is a great sorrow, although not everyone experiences that sorrow to the same degree. (coughs) Fifthly, in some cases, it's joined with restitution. For example, when our sin has defrauded our neighbor. And sixthly, he says, a godly sorrow is abiding Well, when you look at that list, we need to ask ourselves the question, what about us? Do we know something of this kind of sorrow? Do you know what it is to sorrow over sin in a godly manner? No, we don't have to shed actual tears over our sins. But do our sins bother us? Do they grieve us? And do we hate them? And are we longing to be set free from them? Well, this is precisely what Ezra and the people of Judah experienced. They experienced a godly sorrow over their sin. But they did more. They also confessed their sin. And that brings us to our second point. As Ezra prayed and wept with his face, bowed down toward the temple, he was approached by a certain Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam. Upon approaching Ezra, Shechaniah did something amazing. He made confession on behalf of all the people. He said, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Now, significantly, Shechaniah's name does not appear in the list of transgressors mentioned in the closing verses of this chapter. And as such, he was not guilty of the sin in question. And yet he uses the plural pronoun we. He says, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. And when doing so, he's echoing Ezra. Recall in his prayer at the end of chapter 9, Ezra also used the inclusive pronoun we, even though he had not committed the sin either. By using this pronoun, Shechaniah was acknowledging that he was part of a covenant community. And that means when one or several members of the community fall into sin, the entire community is implicated. The point is, Shechaniah confessed the sin of the people. Now, who chose him to do this on their behalf? We don't know. All we know is that he confessed. Now, this too is an important aspect of repentance. When we repent, we must not only grieve, we must not only sorrow over our sin, we must also confess it. And that means we must tell God exactly what we did without holding anything back and without making any excuses. For unless we confess our sins, God will not forgive them. 
In 1 John 1, verses 9 and 10, John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we attain the forgiveness of sins? It's in the way, John says, of confessing them. Now, Ezra had already confessed the sins of the people in his prayer in chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. But now Shechaniah, perhaps following Ezra's example, does the same. You notice what he does. First of all, he specifies the sin. Now, most of the time when we confess our sins, we do so only in a very general way. We ask God to forgive our sins without specifying what these sins are exactly. And there's certainly a place for that. Jesus himself taught us to pray very generally, forgive us our our debts. But sometimes we need to be more specific. Sometimes we need to confess to God specifically and in some detail even what we did and why it was wrong. And this is what Shechaniah does. He says without making any apologies, without making any excuses, we have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. He comes clean with God. Secondly, he acknowledges that he had sinned against God. He says in these, these exact words, we have trespassed against God. Now, David does the same. Remember, after Nathan the prophet confronted David with his sin of adultery and murder, David, David wrote Psalm 51. And in verse 4 of that psalm, David says this, against you, he's talking to God now, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is striking. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against her husband Uriah. In a sense, he had sinned against the entire nation of Israel as the king of Israel. But ultimately, he says, he had sinned against God. Now, Shechaniah says exactly the same. The people, too, had sinned against God. And he acknowledges this and he confesses it before the face of God. My friend, what about you today? Do you confess specific sins before God? It could be any sin. It could be the sin of lust or anger, worry, fear, bitterness, covetousness, gossip. And do you ever take these sins before God? And do you ever confess them specifically before his face? And do you acknowledge that ultimately all of these sins have been committed against God? My friend, this is vital to repentance. Unless we confess our sins to God, we cannot and will not be forgiven. But even confession is not enough. In order to repent, we must also take action. We must turn our backs on sin and walk in a new and holy life. And that brings us to our third and final point. Upon confessing the sins of the people, Shechaniah proceeded to present Ezra with a plan. And he proposed to make a covenant with God. This is what he says in verse 2. We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn and legally binding agreement that contains both promises and obligations and penalties if the obligations are not met. And this is precisely what Shechaniah was proposing. 
He was proposing that the people make a covenant with God. And what were they going to do? What was Shechaniah proposing? Well, he tells us. He proposes that the people covenant with God, and I quote now from our text, to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. So Shechaniah here proposes something very radical. He proposes that the men who married heathen women divorce them and send their children away. What is more, he looked to Ezra to put the wheels in motion. Verse 4, Shechaniah says to Ezra, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And Ezra did. For we read in the following verses that Ezra made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. But since it was the rainy season, as we read in our text, and since many had committed this sin, Ezra agreed to appoint a commission to investigate the matter further. Two months later, the commission submitted its report. And the names of the guilty were announced. And we find those names recorded in verses 18 to 44. And each of these men were instructed to put away his wife and their children. Now, this event raises several questions. The first question is this. The prophet Malachi, who was a contemporary of Ezra, proclaimed that God hates divorce. He says so in Malachi 2, verse 16. Now, if that is so, how could Ezra propose that these men divorce their wives? Did this not contradict the words of Malachi and ultimately the will of God, since Malachi spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Secondly, In Nehemiah 13, we read of a similar situation that occurred around 15 years later. Then, too, the men of Jerusalem were marrying heathen women, so this seems to have been a persistent sin among the people at this time. Now, like Ezra, Nehemiah also disapproved of these marriages, but unlike Ezra, he did not insist that they divorce their wives. So that raises the question, why would Ezra insist on divorce and not Nehemiah? Well, when answering these questions, we need to keep several things in mind. First of all, at no time in this chapter does Ezra use the normal Hebrew word for married. And that may suggest that these people were not technically married. They were living together. They were living in sin, or what we would call a common law relationship. Nor does Ezra use the normal word for divorce, which would make sense if these marriages were not legal in the first place. Now, if this is correct, then Ezra was not advocating for divorce at all. He was simply seeking to undo what should never have been done in the first place. But even if he was advocating divorce, we have to keep in mind the circumstances. These exiles had only been in the land for a few decades. Already in that short space of time, some of them were starting to integrate with the heathen nations around them. And Ezra understood that if that trend continued, over time there would be nothing left of them. They would be completely assimilated into the surrounding nations. And if that happened, then the Messiah could not come into the world, and the entire plan of redemption would come to a screeching halt. And Ezra understood this, even if he was advocating divorce, he had every reason to do so. 
The second thing to keep in mind is that in Malachi 2 verse 11, we read that the people of Ezra's day profaned the holiness of the Lord by marrying the daughter of a strange God. And I'm quoting there from Malachi 2.11. Now that implies that those who had married these heathen women had also, in a spiritual sense, married their gods as well. And needless to say, this was strictly forbidden by the law of God. And in fact, it was the very reason why the people of Judah were sold into captivity in the first place. What is more, it's clear that in the process of marrying these heathen women, the men of Judah divorced their original Jewish wives. Now we know that because in Malachi 2 verse 14, Malachi denounces the men of Judah for dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. And so it appears from this that the men of Judah had divorced their original Jewish wives in order to marry these heathen wives, or as we said, live in a common law relationship with them. Now, why they did so is not clear. But it was probably because by doing so, they could form alliances with their heathen neighbors and advance themselves politically and socially and economically. Because of the hardness of our hearts, the Bible does allow for divorce in the case of adultery. Some would say in the case of desertion as well. But it never allows divorce for the sake of political, social, or economic advancement. And so when God says he hates divorce, he was referring specifically to divorce as it was being practiced at that particular time. Thirdly, we need to keep in mind that while the scripture carefully and accurately describes events, it does not always intend for us to do precisely the same in our own contexts. And so what we have in Ezra 10 is perhaps more of a description than a prescription. And that would explain why Ezra demanded divorce, but Nehemiah did not. Why he didn't, we don't know. Perhaps the circumstances were different. Point is, just because Ezra demanded divorce did not mean Nehemiah had to do the same. Now, what can we learn from this about repentance? Because that, after all, is the focus of this sermon. Well, we learn here that true repentance results in action. Take these men in our text. They knew that what they had done was wrong, and they grieved over it. They confessed it before the Lord. And now we see that they did something about it. They put away their wives and the children that were born to them, as painful as that must have been. Now, some of us might think that this was too drastic and even cruel, and maybe it was. But it does serve as a powerful illustration of the lengths to which they were prepared to go in order to serve the Lord, to do His will, and to pursue after holiness. And so the question comes to us today, to what lengths Are you and I prepared to go? You know, many Christians today, when confronted by a particular sin in their lives, will never do what the men of Judah did. Most people today will make excuses, or they will outrightly deny that it's a sin. But the one thing they will not do is forsake it, turn their back on it, and live a new and holy life. They may grieve over it, they may confess it, They may say it's wrong, they may admit that they did wrong, that they did sin in the sight of God, but they will not turn their back on it. Why is that? Because by nature we love our sins. We love what our sins give to us and how they make us feel. 
And as a result, we cling to them like a baby clings to his rattle. The only way we will ever break free from sin is by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Only he can convict us of the sinfulness of sin, and only he can enable us to turn and flee from it. Now, since that is so, how fervently we should pray that the Lord would pour out his Holy Spirit upon us as individuals, as families, and as churches. Unless the Spirit works within us, my friend, we will never repent as we ought. And our repentance will simply be a matter of words, but unless those words are attached to action, it doesn't mean a thing. And so the men of Judah repented of their sin. Did God forgive them? We may believe he did. For when we truly repent, God will fully forgive. And that is still true today. My friend, what sins are you guilty of today? Let me say to you, bring them to the Lord. Grieve over them. Confess them. And then resolve by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to turn away from them and to live a new and holy life. And God will forgive and he will restore you to himself. On what basis? Well, certainly not on the basis of our repentance, no matter how deep and sincere it may be but only on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You notice how after Shechaniah confessed that the people had trans- trespassed against the Lord for marrying these heathen women, he said this. He said, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. It's a striking statement. What was he referring to? What was this hope? Well, for Shechaniah, it was the covenant that the men of Judah would make with God and the covenant faithfulness of God and the mercy of God. But for us, it is the mediator of this covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. In fact, he is our only hope. For he and he alone did what we cannot do. He paid the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross, and he imputes to us his righteousness so that we can stand before God and live And the promises of the gospel is that sinners who come to him in true repentance will receive the pardon of all of their sins and everlasting life. My friend, have you looked to this Savior? Apart from him, there is no hope at all. But in him, there is an abundance of hope, a hope that will endure to all eternity for even the greatest of sinners. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org.
Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, L-E-H-M-A-N, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can visit our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.